0: Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Council of Left's Daily Nonpareil for Wednesday, January third, twenty twenty-four. I'm your reader, Scott Splayvich, and here's our first story. It's entitled "College Seeks to Dispo- Depose Alleged Trafficking Victims." It's written by Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. A community college that's facing two multi-million dollar lawsuits alleging it engaged in human trafficking is arguing the alleged victims must return to Iowa from Chile to sit for depositions in the case. The former students say they can't afford the expense of returning to Iowa and have sought the court's permission to provide deposition testimony remotely through Zoom-type video conferencing. The two lawsuits against Western Iowa Tech Community College were filed in federal court more than three years ago and are scheduled for trial next spring. One lawsuit was filed on behalf of 14 students from Chile, and the other was filed on behalf of 11 other students who mostly originate from Brazil. The lawsuits allege the school enticed impoverished students to come to Iowa where they were placed in debt bondage working at a food processing plant and dog food factory. The Sioux City College allegedly procured visas for the students to enroll in the school's international education program, then steered them to work in the processing plants. The college then diverted money from the students' paychecks to reimburse the school for the cost of the program, the lawsuit claims. As part of recent court filings, lawyers for the school note that the plaintiffs are claiming extraordinarily high damages, damages in the seven-figure range for each plaintiff in this matter. The defendants in the two cases, all of whom have denied any wrongdoing, include the college, several of its employees, Turpac Foods, which runs a food processing plant in Sioux City, Royal Cannon USA, which runs a dog food factory in North Sioux City, South Dakota, and JNL staffing and recruiting, which allegedly helped place the students in the two plants at the behest of the school. As with most civil lawsuits, parties on both sides of the two cases have scheduled depositions for witnesses to provide sworn testimony prior to any courtroom trial. However, at least seven of the plaintiffs in the case involving the Chilean students have argued that they should be allowed to give their depositions remotely without returning to Iowa. Of the seven, three are living now in Chile and four are living in Florida. One former WITCC student, Claudio Ramos of Santiago, Chile, told the court the 5,000-mile flight to Des Moines would take 18 to 24 hours. I can't afford the expense of an international flight plus hotel rooms, he said in a sworn statement. I am currently employed as a security guard. I make approximately 46,000 Chilean pesos a month, which equals $519.80 per month i have no savings the flight alone would cost more than two months worth of income attorneys for the school say most of the students returned to iowa earlier in the year to sit for psychological evaluations related to their claims against the school They say the social media accounts of one former WITCC student from Chile shows him visiting Zombie Burger, the Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden, and 801 Chop House in Des Moines. The school's lawyers also say depositions in the case will be complicated and include five different law firms, countless attorneys, an interpreter, a court reporter, and a substantial number of documents drawn from the 100,000 pages of records that have so far been produced. Plaintiffs have made incredibly serious allegations against the defendants, including human trafficking, fraud, breach of contract, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and violations of Iowa's wage payment collection law. Attorneys for the school argue, based on the uncommon and egregious nature of plaintiffs' claims alone, plaintiffs should be required to appear in person for their depositions. Lawyers for the Chilean students say some of their clients are currently unemployed, lack a valid passport, or have yet to obtain the necessary visa to return to Iowa and sit for depositions. They also claim that the defendants themselves are responsible for at least some of the limitations on travel the students now face. For example, one program that allows for quick approval of travel abroad screens out Chileans who may have violated immigration laws by working in unauthorized jobs. That could restrict the travel of former WITCC students who were trafficked into jobs that they were not legally authorized to perform, the plaintiff's attorneys allege. The two sides recently reached an agreement to have the former students now living in Florida come to Iowa and complete their depositions in 12-hour sessions structured to minimize their travel expenses. As for the former WITCC students now in Chile, It remains uncertain as to whether they'll be granted permission to enter the United States. Their depositions have been delayed to January to give the parties more time to negotiate a resolution. Currently, the two civil cases are expected to go to trial between April and June of 2024. Each of the defendants has denied wrongdoing and the school has stated that any damages the students suffered were caused by or contributed by their own actions. The first of the lawsuits was filed in late 2020 and has survived a broad array of legal challenges mounted by the defendants. Chief Judge of the U.S. District Court for Northern District of Iowa, Leonard T. Strand, dismissed claims of racketeering and indentured servitude against the defendants in one case but let stand several counts alleging human trafficking breach of contract fraud and with regard to the school the intentional infliction of emotional distress WITCC specifically prohibited the students from seeking other employment without permission, making their labor for Terpac or Royal Cannon the only way they could provide for themselves, Strand stated in his ruling. The students are foreign nationals with varying levels of proficiency in English. They all made financial sacrifices to be a part of the program, with several of them selling nearly everything they owned prior to enrolling in the program. The lawsuits allege that WITCC recruited the students with the promise of an education as well as work in the culinary arts or robotic industries. However, the culinary arts program students signed up for was allegedly rebranded a food service diploma program, and the robotics program students signed up for was rebranded as an electromechanical technician program. After arriving in Iowa, the students were put to work on meatpacking production lines to help fill a labor shortage in western Iowa. Some of the students had to work 12-hour overnight shifts and then report to class by 8 a.m., one of the lawsuits alleges. The school allegedly arranged for J&L to put the students to work at Turpack and Royal Cannon. The arrangement allegedly called for the two companies to pay $15 an hour for the students' labor, with $7.75 an hour of that routed to the college to offset the expense of the students' housing, tuition, and fees. No criminal charges have been filed in the case. Next is an article entitled, Stigma May Worsen Congo's Pox Outbreak. It's written by Yan. Yen- Yen Ives Kamale and Maria Cheng of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Kinshasa, Congo. As the Democratic Republic of Congo copes with its biggest outbreak of Mpox, scientists warn discrimination against gay and bisexual men on the continent could make it worse. In November, the World Health Organization reported that Mpox, also known as monkeypox, was being spread via sex in Congo for the first time. That is a significant departure from previous flare-ups where the virus mainly sickened people in contact with diseased animals. MPOX has been in parts of Central and West Africa for decades, but it was not until 2022 that it was documented to spread via sex. Most of the 91,000 people infected in approximately 100 countries that year were gay or bisexual men. In Africa, unwillingness to report symptoms could drive the outbreak underground, said Demi Ogoina, an infectious disease specialist at the Niger Delta University in Nigeria. It could be that because homosexuality is prohibited by law in most parts of Africa, many people do not come forward if they think they have been infected with Mpox, Ogoina said. WHO officials said they identified the first sexually transmitted cases of the more severe type of MPOX in Congo last spring, shortly after a resident of Belgium who identified himself as a man who has sexual relations with other men arrived in Kinshasa, the Congolese capital. The United Nations Health Agency said five other people who had sexual contact with the man later became infected with MPOX. We have been underestimating the potential of sexual transmission of MPOX in Africa for years, said Ogoina, who, with his colleagues, first reported in 2019 that MPOX might be spreading via sex. Gaps in monitoring make it a challenge to estimate how many MPOX cases are linked to sex, he said. Still, most cases of MPOX in Nigeria involve people with no known contact with animals, he noted. In Congo, there have been about 13,350 suspected cases of MPOX, including 607 deaths through the end of November, with only about 10% of cases confirmed by laboratories. But how many infections were spread through sex isn't clear. WHO said about 70% of cases are in children under the age of 15. During a recent trip to Congo to assess the outbreak, WHO officials found there was no awareness among health workers that MPOX could be spread sexually, resulting in missed cases. WHO said health authorities had confirmed sexual transmission of MPOX between male partners and simultaneously through heterosexual transmission in different parts of the country. MPOX typically causes symptoms including a fever, skin rash, lesions, and muscle soreness for up to one month. It spread via close contact, and most people recover without needing medical treatment. During the 2022 major international outbreak, mass vaccination programs were undertaken in some countries, including Canada, Britain, and the U.S., and targeted those at highest risk, gay and bisexual men. But experts say that it's not likely to work in Africa for several reasons, including the stigma against gay communities. I don't think we'll see the same clamoring for vaccines in Africa that we saw in the West last year, said Dr. Tit an assistant professor of medicine in infectious diseases at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta. She said that the gay and bisexual men most at risk of MPOX might be fearful of coming forward in a broad immunization program. Countries should work on ways to give the shots, if available, in a way that wouldn't stigmatize them, she said. Dr. Jean Jacques Mayemba, general director of Congo's National Institute of Biomedical Research, said two provinces in Congo had reported clusters of Mpox spread through sex, a concerning development. There's no licensed vaccine in Congo, and it would be hard to to get enough shots for any large-scale program, Muyemba said. The country is trying to get a Japanese MPOX pox vaccine, but regulatory issues are complicating the situation, he said. Next, Cold Snap grips Finland, Sweden, to start off New Year. This is written by Jerry Tanner of the Associated Press, and the dateline is Helsinki. Finland and Sweden recorded their coldest temperatures of the winter Tuesday when thermometers plummeted as low as minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit as a cold spell grips the Nordic region. Cold and snow disrupted transportation throughout the region, including in Norway, where a major highway in the south was closed due to the weather and ferry lines suspended operation. Swedish train operators said the cold snap caused substantial problems for rail traffic in the Arctic North. A small village inhabited by indigenous Sami people in northern Sweden recorded a temperature of minus 42.8 degrees Fahrenheit early Tuesday, Swedish public broadcaster SVT reported. It's the coldest temperature we have had so far this winter, and it will continue to be quite cold weather in the north, SVT meteorologist Nils Holmquist said. The Swedish Meteorological and Hydrological Institute reported temperatures of minus 22 degrees Fahrenheit in several locations in northern Sweden and issued a warning for snow and wind for central and southern Sweden. Its second highest warning applies from midnight into Wednesday. In neighboring Finland, this winter's cold record was recorded in the northwestern town of Yldsika where temperatures fell to minus 36 degrees Fahrenheit early Tuesday, and forecasters said temperatures would be lower than minus 40 degrees Celsius in parts of the nation through the week. Temperatures in the Finnish capital, Helsinki, were expected to hover around zero degrees Fahrenheit. In the southern Norway town of Arendal, officials said schools would be closed Wednesday because it was impossible to clear the sidewalks in time for children to get to school. Next up is an article entitled, Airstrike Hits Beirut, One of Hamas's Top Leaders Killed, Risk of Escalation Increases. This comes from the Associated Press and the Dateline is Beirut. An apparent Israeli strike in Lebanon's capital, Beirut, killed Hamas's number two political leader Tuesday, marking a potentially significant escalation of Israel's war against the militant group and heightening the risk of a wider Middle East conflict. Saleh Aruri, who was the most senior Hamas figure killed since the war with Israel began October 7, was also a founder of the group's military wing. His death could provoke major retaliation by Lebanon's powerful Hezbollah militia. The strike hit an apartment in a building in a Shiite district of Beirut that is a Hezbollah stronghold, and Hezbollah leader Sayed Hassan Nasrallah has vowed to strike back against any Israeli targeting of Palestinian officials in Lebanon. Hezbollah and the Israeli military have been exchanging fire almost daily over the Israeli-Lebanese border since Israel's military campaign in Gaza began nearly three months ago. But so far, the Lebanese group has appeared reluctant to dramatically escalate the fighting. A significant response now could send the conflict spiraling into all-out war on Israel's northern border. Lebanon's state-run national news agency said the strike was carried out by an Israeli drone and Israeli officials declined to comment. Speaking to reporters, Israeli military spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari did not directly mention Arari's death but said, We are focused and remain focused on fighting against Hamas. We are on high readiness for any scenario, he added. The killing comes ahead of a visit to the region by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken even as the United States has tried to prevent the conflict from spreading, warning Hezbollah and its regional supporter Iran not to escalate the the violence. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to press ahead with the assault in Gaza until Hamas is crushed and more than 100 hostages still held by the militant group in Gaza are freed, which he has said could take several more months. At the same time, Israeli officials have increasingly warned in recent days of stepped-up action against Hezbollah unless its cross-border fire stops. Also on Tuesday, officials said Israel will defend itself before the United Nations top court against charges that it has engaged in genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. And from Wajima, Japan, officials warn of more quakes. Amid aftershocks, death toll rises to 62, many homes destroyed. A series of powerful earthquakes that hit western Japan have left at least 62 people dead and damaged thousands of buildings, vehicles, and boats. Officials warned Tuesday that more quakes could lie ahead. Aftershocks continued to shake Ishikawa prefecture and nearby areas a day after a magnitude 7.6 trembler slammed the area. Damage was so great that it could not immediately be assessed. Japanese media reports said tens of thousands of homes were destroyed. Dozens of people have been seriously injured, including in nearby prefectures. Water, power, and cell phone service were still down in some areas. Residents expressed sorrow about their uncertain futures. It's not just that it's a mess. The wall has collapsed and you can see through to the next room. I don't think we can live here anymore. Mickey Kobayashi and... Ishikawa resident said as she swept around her house. The house was also damaged in a 2007 quake, she said. Although casualty numbers continued to climb, the prompt public warnings relayed on broadcasts and phones and the quick response from the general public and officials appeared to have limited some of the damage. Toshitaka Katata A University of Tokyo professor specializing in disasters said people were prepared because the area had been hit by quakes in recent years. They had evacuation plans and emergency supplies in stock. There are probably no people on Earth who are as disaster ready as the Japanese, he told the Associated Press. Japan is frequently hit by earthquakes because of its location along the Ring of Fire, an arc of volcanoes, and fault lines in the Pacific Basin. Katata warned the situation remains unpredictable. The March 2011 quake and tsunami in northern, northeastern Japan had been preceded by other quakes. This is far from over, Katata said, adding, Having too much confidence in the power of science is very dangerous. We are dealing with nature. Next, we have an article entitled, Amid Criticism, Harvard President Stepping Down. She faced backlash for testimony at hearing and alleged plagiarism. This comes from the Associated Press, and the dateline is Cambridge, Massachusetts. Harvard University President Claudine Gay resigned Tuesday amid plagiarism accusations and criticism over testimony at a congressional hearing where she was unable to say unequivocally that calls on campus for the genocide of Jews would violate the school's conduct policy. Gay is the second Ivy League president to resign in the past month following the congressional testimony. Liz McGill, president of the University of Pennsylvania, resigned on December the 9th. Gay, Harvard's first black president, announced her departure just months into her tenure in a letter to the Harvard community. After the hearing, conservative activists unearthed several instances of alleged plagiarism in Gay's 1997 doctoral dissertation. Harvard's governing board initially rallied behind her, saying a review of her scholarly work turned up a few instances of inadequate citation, but no evidence of research misconduct. Days later, the Harvard Corporation revealed that it found two additional examples of duplicative language without appropriate attribution. The board said Gay would update her dissertation and request corrections. And national debt hits $34 trillion earlier than projected. Deal reached in June to stave off default ends in early 2025. This comes from the Associated Press, and the dateline is Washington. The federal government's gross national debt surpassed $34 trillion in record, a record high that foreshadows the coming political and economic challenges to improve America's balance sheet in the coming years. The U.S. Treasury Department issued a report Tuesday logging U.S. finances, which have become a source of tension in a politically divided Washington that could see parts of the government shut down without an annual budget in place. Republican lawmakers and the White House agreed last June to temporarily lift the debt limit, staving off the risk of a historic default. That agreement lasts until January 2025. The Congressional Budget Office's January 2020 projections had gross federal debt eclipsing $34 trillion in fiscal year 2029. However, the debt grew faster than expected because of the COVID-19 pandemic that started in 2020 and shut down much of the U.S. economy. The government borrowed heavily under then President Donald Trump and current President Joe Biden to stabilize the economy and support a recovery. But the rebound came with a surge of inflation. Here's a couple short articles under the Digest heading. Trump appeals Maine officials' ballot decision. Former President Donald Trump on Tuesday appealed a ruling by Maine's Secretary of State barring him from the state's primary ballot over his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. The 2024 Republican frontrunner appealed the decision by Maine Democrat Shanna Bellows the first Secretary of State to bar someone from running for the presidency under the 14th Amendment's Section 3, which prohibits those who engage in insurrection from holding office. Trump's lawyers argue the provision isn't intended to apply to the president, and the oath for office isn't to support the Constitution, but to preserve, protect, and defend it. The appeal to a Maine superior court asks that Bellows be required to place him on the March 5th primary ballot, Trump is expected to appeal a similar ban in Colorado to the U.S. Supreme Court. New details added to Menendez' indictment. This comes from New York. U.S. Senator Bob Menendez publicly supported the government of Qatar and enabled a member of the Qatari royal family, a principal in a company with ties to the government of Qatar, to invest tens of millions of dollars in a New Jersey businessman's real estate project, a revised indictment alleged Tuesday. No new charges were added. The superseding indictment did not identify the member of the Qatari royal family, but said the individual was the principal of the Qatari Investment Company. Menendez, a Democrat from New Jersey, already was charged with wielding his political influence to secretly advance Egypt's interests. The indictment said the Qatari investor eventually negotiated a multi-million dollar investment in the real estate project planned by Fred Davies, One of three businessmen charged in the bribery conspiracy indictment with the 70-year-old senator and his wife all pleaded not guilty. Now here's a few articles under the briefly heading... Ukraine's two largest cities came under attack early Tuesday from Russian missiles that killed five people and injured as many as 130, officials said, as the war approaches its two-year mark. An appeals court said Tuesday that Michael Cohen can't hold his former boss, ex-president Donald Trump, liable for Cohen being in jailed for what he claimed was retaliation for writing a tell-all memoir. The driver, tentatively identified as Michael Avery, age 35, of the Syracuse area, who crashed an SUV loaded with gas cans outside a New York concert venue, appeared to be aiming at a pedestrian crossing, but there's no evidence of a terror motive in the fiery wreck that killed him and two others on New Year's Day, police said Tuesday. A small 2.3-magnitude earthquake shook the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. early Tuesday, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. A 17-year-old exchange student from China reported missing last week in Utah was found safe Sunday in what officials said was an apparent cyber-kidnapping scheme to extort $80,000 from the student's family. And a large passenger plane and a Japanese Coast Guard aircraft collided Tuesday on the runway at Tokyo's Haneda Airport and burst into flames, killing five people on the Coast Guard plane, officials said. All 379 people got off the passenger plane safely. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily non Parel on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splevick. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. There are no opinions and no obituaries in today's papers, so I'll continue with this next story entitled Self-Checkout's Reckoning, Technology Not Quite the Panacea Everyone Thought It Would Be. It's written by Anne D'Incenzio of the Associated Press. The promise of self-checkout was alluring. Customers could avoid long lines by scanning and bagging their own items, workers could be freed of doing those monotonous tasks themselves, and retailers could save on labor costs. All that has happened since the rollout of self-checkout, but so has this, customers griping about clunky technology that spits out mysterious error codes, workers having to stand around and monitor both humans and machines, and retailers contending with theft. Going to the grocery store used to be simple, and now it's frustrating, said Cindy Whittington, age 66, of Fairfax, Virginia. You're paying more, you're working harder to pay for merchandise at their store, and it's become an ordeal to check out. I should get a 5% discount. In 2021, self-checkout usage represented 30% of transactions, almost double from 2018, according to a survey of retailers by FMI and Industry Group and 96% of retailers surveyed offered self-checkout. But the technology is also facing a reckoning. Some retailers are adding restrictions while others are pulling out completely. This past fall, Walmart removed self-checkout kiosks in three stores in Albuquerque, New Mexico as part of a location-by-location approach, but on the whole it is adding more than it is taking away. To reduce wait times, Target now limits the number of items to 10 that shoppers can scan in a handful of stores nationwide. British supermarket chain Booth's has been getting rid of its self-checkout at the majority of its stores for the past 18 months in reaction to customer backlash. A year ago, grocery chain Wegmans, citing losses, discontinued its self-checkout app that lets shoppers scan and bag items while they shop, However, it continues to offer self-checkout registers at its stores. Self-checkout, first tested in supermarkets in the late 1980s, gained momentum 20 years ago. Both grocers, but grocers ramped it up even more three years ago to address the pandemic-induced labor shortages. The Bureau of Labor Statistics says technological advances such as self-checkout and online sales have been the main driver in the declining number of cashier jobs, although there are no precise estimates on how many cashiers have been replaced by self-checkout. According to Labor Department data, there are about 1.2 million people currently working as cashiers compared to 1.4 million in 2019, and the BLS expects the number to fall an additional 10% over the next decade. We are at an inflection point where if Americans are willing to do this and show an interest, then stores will probably expand it because they want to slash that labor cost, said Christopher Andrews, associate professor and chair of sociology at Drew University and author of The Overworked Consumer, Self-Checkouts, Supermarkets, and the Do-It-Yourself Economy. But right now they're just seeing the downside. They're seeing frustrated customers. They're seeing increased cost and shoplifting. Theft is indeed a problem, Andrew said. A technology that relies on shoppers to do their own scanning and punch in product quantities tempts even law-abiding citizens to be dishonest. It's easy to just scan every other item or punch in codes for a cheaper item. Shoppers could also make honest mistakes, leading to losses for stores. John Katsimatidis chairman and CEO of Red Apple Group, owner of Gristiti's and D'Agostino's food stores in New York City, said he has no interest in self-checkout because of theft, and he noted that the technology is not where it needs to be. Dishonest people will always find a way to slip a package through, he said. Still, self-checkout isn't going away, especially with stubborn labor shortages, and plenty of people love it. Ellen Wolfhorst, age 65, said using self-checkout brings back her childhood when she played with a toy register. There's something childish and fun about it, Wolfhorst said. I get a big kick out of sliding the product across the reader and it goes beep. There's a certain satisfaction to it. For Robin Wisman doherty of South Salem, New York, who has a progressive neurodegenerative disease and uses a walker, self-checkout makes her shopping experience easier. The 67-year-old said she likes to shop at Stop and Shop because it has scan-and-go technology that allows her to scan her items with a device as she shops and then tallies up her bill. She can either pay at a kiosk or at a manned register. The laser gun works for disabled people, she said. Stu Leonard Jr., president and CEO of Stu Leonard's, a supermarket chain that operates stores in Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey, said 25% of its customers use self-service. That number could be up to 50% in the next few years. He noted one-third of its registers are unmanned, but he's in a holding pattern and is thinking of limiting the number of items to be scanned. Retailers have been adding cameras or sensors at kiosks to monitor shoppers. Kroger, for example, has deployed artificial intelligence technology at a majority of stores that triggers alerts when something is amiss. For example, if a shopper fails to scan a particular item successfully, the system flags the error on the screen and prompts the customer to self-correct. If customers are unable to resolve the problem themselves, a light above the shelf checkout blinks to attract workers' attention. There have been inroads for more advanced technology. Amazon's Just Walk Out technology is in more than 70 Amazon-owned stores and more than 100 third-party retailers across the US, including airports. It uses sophisticated cameras and allows shoppers to enter the store with a credit card or debit card or by simply hovering their palm over an Amazon One palm payment device and then walk out without having to stand in line to check out. Japanese fashion retailer Uniqlo has RFID chips embedded in price tags to power a self-checkout system at its Fifth Avenue store in Manhattan as part of a wide-scale rollout at its stores. Customers place their items in bins at self-service stations and pay without having to scan items. Still, for some workers who were supposed to be liberated from the monotonous task of ringing up customers, the tedium just comes in a different form. Bernadette Christian, age 59, a worker at Giant Food in Clinton, Maryland, takes care of six self-service stations at once, and she's afraid to help or confront shoppers who said, she who she said had become angrier since the pandemic it would be easy for us to be cashiers and it would be a lot more safe in today's world she said in environmental news lawsuits target deforestation brazil state fights against meat companies farmers this comes from the associated press Authorities in a western Brazil state are targeting deforestation of the Amazon with a slew of lawsuits against slaughterhouses and farmers accused of illegally raising cattle in a protected area. The lawsuit seeks millions of dollars for environmental damage in the J.C. Parana Reserve, an area that was once rainforest. It's now mostly grassland after decades of misuse by land grabbers, loggers, and cattle ranchers. The state of Rondônia brought the lawsuits against meat processing giant JBS and three smaller slaughterhouses, along with farmers accused of raising and selling cattle illegally. Prosecutors say the evidence was provided by the ranchers themselves. The Associated Press and Agencia Publica, a Brazilian nonprofit news agency, examined the 17 lawsuits as part of a collaboration that included visiting J.C. Paraná, to view damage to the reserve and to interview people who said they were forced from their homes there by land grabbers using threats and violence. Some takeaways from the work. Three lawsuits named JBS along with farmers who allegedly provided 227 cattle raised in JSC Parana, the world's largest meat producer. Those lawsuits seek some $3.4 million for damages to the reserve The company declined to answer questions about the lawsuits, saying JBS has not been summoned by the court. Three smaller meatpacking companies also accused in lawsuits of buying illegal cattle from J.C. Parana, Frigon, Distribui, and Tangara did not respond to questions. Evidence in the lawsuits includes transfer documents for cows that show them coming from within the J.C. Parana Reserve. That documentation was a likely result of many land grabbers seeking to demonstrate their occupancy of protected lands under former far-right President Jair Bolsonaro, who strongly supported development in the Amazon. Rondonia's governor, a staunch Bolsonaro ally, actually signed a law in 2021 to shrink Jassi Parana by 90% through the law though the law was later validated, invalidated. Excuse me. Illegal trade in cattle raised in the rainforest has been a persistent problem, and Brazil's federal prosecutor scrutinizes cattle sales to try to counter the deforestation that results. JBS operates four slaughterhouses in Rodonia on Brazil's border with Bolivia. An audit published in October found 12% of cattle purchased by them came from illegally deforested areas. The J.C. Piranha cattle may have ended up on American tables. Both Frigone and the two JBS plants that allegedly bought from illegal farmers there exported beef to the U.S. and several other countries, according to data from Panjiva, a company that uses customs records to track international trade. A report included in court papers pegs damage to the reserve at about $1 billion, and some of the money sought in the lawsuits is intended to help cover the high costs of reforestation. Journalists visited the J.C. Parana in July to see on the ground what satellite imagery had shown from space. The only forested area left in more than 760-square-mile preserve are along the J.C. Parana and Bronco rivers. Almost 80% of the reserve, or an area roughly the size of Los Angeles, has been destroyed. Deforestation is a major concern for the Amazon rainforest, where many seek to profit from its vast resources through mining, timber, harvesting, agriculture, and more. Besides harming a critical biosphere, the development pressure also threatens a critical carbon sink for a planet that's warming dangerously from climate change. Dozens of families who made their living by tapping rubber trees and harvesting Brazil nuts inside the reserve were forcibly removed. Lincoln Fernandez de Lima, age 45, whose family lived in the area for three generations, described land grabbers methodically removing timber and shooting up or destroying the homes of residents. Lima said he was visited in September by two armed men who told him their boss acquired the area. They gave him 24 hours to leave. He said it was the third time he had been forced out of the reserve. Five days later, his neighbor's home was burned down, Lima said. J.C. Parana Village has also been the home of Rosa Maria Lopez. She was born in 1952 in a rubber grove inside the reserve. She said her family lived in the same area for more than a century before they were pushed out by cattle farmers. The place where she grew up is now a pasture. There's nothing left there, she told the AP. No one talks about Brazil nuts, copaiba, oil-producing tree, or rubber anymore. There's no talk about corn, pumpkin, or whatever is served on the table. It's only cattle, farms, and pasture. Are we only going to eat grass?" Now it's time to move on to the sports page, and we'll start with some NFL news first. Jets wave Cook ahead of finale. The New York Jets are waiving running back Dalvin Cook before the final game of the season, according to Cook's agents, LAA Sports and Entertainment. The 28-year-old Cook had a disappointing tenure with the Jets, who signed the four-time Pro Bowl selection to a one-year deal worth $7 million, including $5.8 million guaranteed during the summer. NFL Network first reported Tuesday that the sides mutually agreed to part ways, citing Cook's agents who confirmed the move to the Associated Press. Cook will go through waivers and would become a free agent if he goes unclaimed. After Aaron Rodgers was lost for the season with a torn left Achilles tendon four snaps into his debut with the Jets, Cook's role in New York's offense never materialized. He was recently served past by rookie Israel abanikanda as the backup to Brees hall in the jets backfield cook finished with career lows of 214 yards rushing and 78 yards receiving cook was in uniform but didn't play at cleveland last thursday and had no touches on offense in the past two games And the Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback, Kenny Pickett, said the coaching staff felt he wasn't ready to play against Seattle, which is why he was inactive during Pittsburgh's 30-20 win over the Seahawks. The second-year pro, who had right ankle surgery a month ago, denied online speculation that he told the coaching staff he didn't want to suit up as a backup behind Mason Rudolph. Coach Mike Tomlin said on Monday that Pickett had been cleared by the medical staff to play, but he opted to make Pickett inactive because of his lack of reps during practice. Pickett was listed as questionable going into the game, but watched from the sideline in sweats while Rudolph guided an offense that piled up 468 yards. Tomlin opted to stick with Rudolph ahead of a trip to Baltimore on Saturday, where the Steelers will try to keep their playoff hopes alive with a win over the AFC North champion Ravens, Pickett is expected to be the backup. And Frank Ryan wasn't your average quarterback. His arm helped make the Cleveland Browns champions. His intellect earned him wider acclaim off the field. Ryan, who led the Browns to their last NFL title in 1964 while spending his off-seasons getting a doctorate diploma in mathematics, died Monday at the age of 87. The team said Ryan died while being cared for at a nursing home in Connecticut. Ryan's son, Frank Ryan Jr., told Cleveland.com that his father had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. In the 1964 title game, Ryan threw three touchdown passes as the Browns shocked the heavily favored Baltimore Colts 27-0. He went on to teach math at Case Western Reserve, Yale, and Rice. He is also credited with helping create an electronic voting system that modernized the U.S. House of Representatives. Former Green Bay Packers center Ken Bowman died at the age of 81. The team announced Bowman's death on Tuesday, saying he died last Wednesday in Oro Valley, Arizona. The Packers did not disclose a cause of death, but cited his wife, Roseanne, saying he died of natural causes. Bowman was part of the Packers' NFL title-winning team in 1965 and the Super Bowl-winning teams of the next two seasons. He's perhaps best known for snapping the ball to Bart Starr and delivering a block on Starr's game-winning quarterback sneak in the ice bowl, the Packers' 1967 NFL championship victory over the Dallas Cowboys. And the NFL fined Carolina owner David Tepper $300,000 for tossing a drink at fans in Jacksonville toward the end of Sunday's game. The league called Tepper's conduct unacceptable in a statement released Tuesday. In college football news, Tech gets test run in bowl games. Coach-to-player audio, sideline tablets, pitched as a way to curb sign-stealing. This is written by Noah Trister of the Associated Press. Billy Edwards Jr. became a test pilot of sorts for the type of helmet communication technology that might soon become commonplace in college football, and the Maryland quarterback was a fan. I think overall it was good, Edwards said after the Terrapins beat Auburn in the Music City Bowl. On one of my runs down there at the goal line, I think the first or second drive, offensive coordinator Josh Gaddis is up there, and most times I think I'm thinking the same thing he's saying, but he was saying they were in like a stick coverage, kind of like a zero look, and he was like, pull, pull, pull it. He just confirmed what I was thinking. In the aftermath of the Michigan sign-stealing scandal, The possibility of college teams using NFL-style communication technology has been viewed with a little more urgency, and with non-playoff bowls sometimes looking more like 2024 exhibition games than 2023 postseason games, teams have taken advantage of the opportunity to try out various devices. Maryland had access to -to coach-to-player communication technology as well as sideline tablets showing video of previous plays. The latter created some interesting moments for Terrapins coach Michael Loxley. The bad part for me is I was able to see a holding call that I wanted to take it on the field and show the referee like, Bro, you missed this call. What are we doing? No, it wasn't great to have that technology, he said. I think the way we are as a developmental program, it's such a cool tool to be able to immediately reinforce so that they can see it. And then also when you guys ask me stuff at the end of the game, I can say, well, I got to wait to see the film. Virginia Tech was also able to use the tablets in the military bowl against Tulane, even though the game was played in a rainstorm. Offensive coordinator Tyler Bowen, formerly a tight ends coach with the Jacksonville Jaguars, said the tablets were actually more useful than what he had in the NFL, since video is better than still shots. You're able to see all the views that you would look at in a film room with the guys, Bowen said. In between series, we would take the footage, go through the series, match the play call with it, and then now we can give live feedback to the coaches on the field, and they have the tablets as well to be able to show the players. So I think it allows you to be more detailed with your adjustments. The tablets came with obvious benefits, but the communication technology is the more significant innovation in light of all the concerns about sign stealing. It's been experimental this postseason and not available for playoff games, and some teams in other bowls decided to pass on using it. Ohio State coach Ryan Day had concerns about adjusting to something new at this stage of the season. Down the road, it makes a lot of sense, Day said before his team's matchup with Missouri in the Cotton Bowl, but to try to win—try to— With everything going on right now, to try to manage a game without having done it all season, we felt like it was probably something we want to have a spring practice and a preseason to work through because of the unintended consequences. Another big question is how much communication is too much. Edwards said he was able to hear his coach all the way until the snap. You shouldn't be in someone's ear for 30 seconds or when they're standing over the ball. I think that will be a distraction more than a help, said Arizona coach Jed Fish, while explaining that his team wouldn't be using the communication technology in the Alamo Bowl against Oklahoma. In men's college basketball top 25, Baycott reaches 2,000 career points. Number eight, UNC pulls away from Pitt for 70 to 57 victory armando baycott had 16 points and 10 rebounds rj davis added 15 points and four assists and number eight north carolina pulled away from pittsburgh 70 to 57 on tuesday night baycott became the seventh player in program history to reach 2,000 in his career he now sits at 2003 four behind charlie scott for sixth on the school's career list the Tar Heels used Davis's shot-making and their size advantage to muscle their way past the Panthers. North Carolina out-rebounded Pitt 51 to 41 and had a 15 to 1 advantage in second-chance points to beat Pitt for just the second time in their last 7 meetings. Bob Carrington led the Panthers with 20 points and Jalen Lowe added 10, but senior forward Blake Hinson was held to 11 points, eight below his average on four of 16 shooting as Pitt lost its second straight. Davis gave the Tar Heels the lead for good with a three-pointer at the halftime buzzer and North Carolina simply wore down the Panthers. Number 1. Purdue 67, Maryland 53. Zach Eady had 23 points and 12 rebounds, and Purdue cruised past Maryland to snap the Terrapins' 19-game home winning streak. The Boilermakers won their second straight, having little difficulty with this offensively challenged Maryland team. Jameer Young scored 26 points for the Terps. Number 4. Connecticut 85, DePaul 56. Cam Spencer scored 20 points to lead UConn in a route of visiting DePaul. The graduate transfer from Rutgers shot 7 for 11 from the field, including 4 a 7 from three point range. Deshaun Nelson led DePaul with 19 points. It was the Huskies' 17 straight win over the Blue Demons. Number 5, Tennessee 87, Norfolk State 50. Zakari Ziegler scored 17 points and had four assists to lead Tennessee past Norfolk State. Toby Awaka collected 10 points and 11 rebounds as the Volunteers won their sixth straight game and 10th straight at home. Number nine, Illinois, 96, Northwestern, 66. Marcus Damask scored 32 points and had a team high six assists to lead Illinois over visiting Northwestern in the Illini's second game without suspended star Terrence Shannon Jr. Damask was 11 of 15 from the field and 9 of 10 from the line. Number 14 Duke, 86, Syracuse, 66. Mark Mitchell scored 18 of his career-high 21 points in the first half, and Jared McCain finished with 18 points as Duke beat visiting Syracuse. The Blue Devils increased their winning streak to five games. Malik Brown had 26 points on 11-for-16 shooting for the Orange. Number 17, Florida Atlantic 79, East Carolina 64. John L Davis and Elijah Martin each scored 20 points and Florida Atlantic shook off a slow start to defeat visiting East Carolina in the Owls first game as a member of the ACC. AAC. FAU went on a 14-0 run in the closing minutes. Number 18 Baylor 98, Cornell 79. Jacoby Walter scored 23 points, fellow freshman Yeves Missy added 16 while making all eight of his shots, and Baylor christened the brand-new Foster Pavilion with a victory over Cornell. Number 21, Wisconsin, 83, Iowa, 72. Tyler Wall scored 19 points. Stephen Crowell had a double-double, and Wisconsin beat Visiting Iowa. The Badgers pulled away after the game was tied at halftime by shooting 58.3% over the last 20 minutes. Crowell added 14 points and a career-high 13 rebounds. Tony Perkins scored 25 points for the Hawkeyes. Number 25, Auburn 88, Penn 68. Johnny Broom had 22 points and 12 rebounds to lead Auburn over visiting Penn. The Tigers won their sixth straight game one day after entering the top 25 for the first time this season. In the NBA, Embiid returns, leads Sixers past Bulls with seventh career double-double. Joel Embiid declined at first to wear a big energy chain before he reluctantly agreed to slip on the gaudy necklace and flexed his muscles for a quick photo at his locker. The process was back and so were the 76ers. Embiid had 31 points, 15 rebounds, and 10 assists in his return from a sprained right ankle. Tyrese Maxey scored 21 points, and Philadelphia beat the Chicago Bulls 110-97 to on Tuesday night. He was moving great. I think his conditioning was less than that, Coach Nick Nurse said. But that's okay. I think that game was good for him to kind of recon- recondition himself. Embiid missed all four games on the 76ers' holiday road trip, and they went 2-2. Two and two. One of those games was in Chicago three nights earlier, a 105-92 loss in which the Sixers never led in the second half. Embiid is the reigning NBA MVP for a reason. With the big man back, the Sixers turned this into an early blowout against the Bulls. The 76ers raced to a 43-18 point lead after one quarter, with Chicago missing all 10 three-pointers it attempted. DeMar DeRozan, Led the Bulls with 16 points. Andre Drummond had 11 points and 17 rebounds. Forward Patrick Williams left with a injured right ankle. Results from other NBA games last night. Grizzlies 106, Spurs 98, Thunder 127, Athletics 123. Pelicans defeated the Nets 112-85. The Hornets defeated the Kings 111 to 104. And the Warriors, 121. The Magic, 115. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily non for Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.